Welcome to the Ardent Archives, a ministry of North Clay Baptist Church. Here we explore the writings of church history in order to edify and equip the saints in their ongoing discipleship. In this series, we are reading and discussing Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy by B.B. Warfield. Written in the late 1800s, Warfield's informative work explores the relevance of Augustine's opposition to the Pelagian heresy. The primary issue for Augustine in the controversy that ensued at the beginning of the 5th century was the nature of man's will and the necessity of God's grace. So sit back and prepare to have your heart and mind engaged as we dive into Augustine and the Pelagian Controversy by B.B. Warfield. Part 1. The Origin and Nature of Pelagianism It was inevitable that the energy of the church in intellectually realizing and defining its doctrines in relation to one another should first be directed towards the objective side of Christian truth. The chief controversies of the first four centuries and the resulting definitions of doctrine concern the nature of God and the person of Christ. And it was not until these theological and Christological questions were well upon their way to final settlement that the church could turn its attention to the more subjective side of truth. Meanwhile, she bore in her bosom a full recognition side by side of the freedom of the will, the evil consequences of the fall, and the necessity of divine grace for salvation. Individual writers, or even the several sections of the church, might exhibit a tendency to throw emphasis on one or another of the elements that made up this deposit of faith that was the common inheritance of Hall. The East, for instance, laid especial stress on free will, and the West dwelt more pointedly on the ruin of the human race and the absolute need of God's grace for salvation. But neither did the Eastern theologians forget the universal sinfulness and need of redemption or the necessity for the realization of that redemption of God's gracious influences, nor did those of the West deny the self-determination or accountability of men. All the elements of the composite doctrine of man were everywhere confessed, but they were variously emphasized according to the temper of the writers or the controversial demands of the times. Such a state of affairs, however, was an invitation to heresy and a prophecy of controversy, just as the simultaneous confession of the unity of God and the deity of Christ, or of the deity and the humanity of Christ, inevitably carried in its train a series of heresies and controversies until the definitions of the doctrines of the Trinity and of the person of Christ were complete. In like manner, it was inevitable that sooner or later, someone should arise who would so one-sidedly emphasize one element or the other of the church's teaching as to salvation, as to throw himself into heresy and drive the church through controversy with him, into a precise definition of the doctrines of free will and grace in their mutual relations. This new heresiarch came at the opening of the 5th century in the person of the British monk Pelagius. The novelty of the doctrine which he taught is repeatedly asserted by Augustine and is evident to the historian, but 
it consisted not in the emphasis that he laid on free will, but rather in the fact that in emphasizing free will, he denied the ruin of the race and the necessity of grace. This was not only new in Christianity, it was even anti-Christian. Jerome, as well as Augustine, saw this at the time and speaks of Pelagianism as the heresy of Pythagoras and Zeno, and modern writers of the various schools have more or less fully recognized it. Thus, Dean Millman thinks that the greater part of Pelagius' letter to Demetrius might have been written by an ancient academic. Dr. De Presense identifies the Pelagian idea of liberty with that of paganism, and Bishop Hefele openly declares that their fundamental doctrine, that man is virtuous entirely of his own merit and out of the gift of grace, seems to him to be a rehabilitation of the general heathen view of the world and compares it with Cicero's words, for gold, lands, and all the blessings of life we have to return thanks to the gods. But no one ever returned thanks to the gods for virtues. The struggle with Pelagianism was thus in reality a struggle for the very foundations of Christianity, and even more dangerously than in the previous theological and Christological controversies, here the practical substance of Christianity was in jeopardy. The real question at issue was whether there was any need for Christianity at all, whether by his own power man might not attain eternal felicity whether the function of Christianity was to save or only to render an eternity of happiness more easily attainable by man. Genetically speaking, Pelagianism was the daughter of legalism, but when it itself conceived, it brought forth an essential deism. It is not without significance that its originators were a certain sort of monks, that is, laymen of ascetic life. From this point of view, the divine law is looked upon as a collection of separate commandments, moral perfection as a simple complex of separate virtues, and a distinct value as a meritorious demand on divine approbation is ascribed to each good work or attainment in the exercises of piety. It was because this was essentially his point of view that Pelagius could regard man's powers as sufficient to the attainment of sanctity. Nay, that he could even assert it to be possible for a man to do more than was required of him. But this involved an essentially deistic conception of man's relations to his maker. God had endowed his creature with a capacity possibilitas, or ability, posse, for action, and it was for him to use it. Man was thus a machine, which, just because it was well made, needed no divine interference for its right working, and the Creator, having once framed him and endowed him with the posse, henceforth leaves the veil and s to him. At this point, we have touched the central and formative principle of Pelagianism. It lies in the assumption of the plenary ability of man, his ability to do all that righteousness can demand, to work out not only his own salvation, but also his own perfection. This is the core of the whole theory, and all the other postulates not only depend upon it, but arise out of it. 
Both chronologically and logically, this is the root of the system. When we first hear of Pelagius, he is already advanced in years, living in Rome in the odor of sanctity and enjoying a well-deserved reputation for zeal and exhorting others to a good life, which grew especially warm against those who endeavored to shelter themselves when charged with their sins behind the weakness of nature. He was outraged by the universal excuses on such occasions. It is hard. It is difficult. We are not able. We are men. Oh, blind madness, he cried. We accuse God of a twofold ignorance, that he does not seem to know what he has made, nor what he has commanded, as if forgetting the human weakness of which he is himself the author. He has imposed laws on man which he cannot endure. He himself tells us that it was his custom, therefore, whenever he had to speak on moral improvement and the conduct of a holy life, to begin by pointing out the power and quality of human nature, and by showing what it was capable of doing. For he says, he esteemed it of small use to exhort men to what they deemed impossible. Hope must rather be our companion, and all longing and effort die when we despair of attaining. So exceedingly ardent an advocate was he of man's unaided ability to do all that God commanded, that when Augustine's noble and entirely scriptural prayer, give what thou commandest, and command what thou wilt, was repeated in his hearing, he was unable to endure it, and somewhat inconsistently contradicted it with such violence as almost to become involved in a strife. The powers of man he held were gifts of God, and it was therefore a reproach against him, as if he had made man ill or evil, to believe that they were insufficient for the keeping of his law. Nay, do what we will, we cannot rid ourselves of their sufficiency. Whether we will or whether we will not, we have the capacity of not sinning. I say he says, that man is able to be without sin, and that he is able to keep the commandments of God, and this sufficiently direct statement of human ability is in reality the hinge of his whole system. There were three specially important corollaries which flowed from this assertion of human ability, and Augustine himself recognized these as the chief elements of the system. It would be inexplicable on such an assumption, if no man had ever used his ability in keeping God's law. And Pelagius consistently asserted not only that all might be sinless if they chose, but also that many saints, even before Christ, had actually lived free from sin. Again, it follows from man's inalienable ability to be free from sin that each man comes into the world without entailment of sin or moral weakness from the past acts of men. And Pelagius consistently denied the whole doctrine of original sin. And still again, it follows from the same assumption of ability that man has no need of supernatural assistance in his striving to obey righteousness. And Pelagius consistently denied both the need and reality of divine grace in the sense of an inward help, and especially of a provenient help to man's weakness.
It was upon this last point that the greatest stress was laid in the controversy, and Augustine was most of all disturbed that thus God's grace was denied and opposed. No doubt the Pelagians spoke constantly of grace, but they meant by this the primal endowment of man with free will and the subsequent aid given him in order to its proper use by the revelation of the law and the teaching of the gospel and, above all, by the forgiveness of past sins in Christ and by Christ's holy example. Anything further than this external help, they utterly denied, and they denied that this external help itself was absolutely necessary, affirming that it only rendered it easier for man to do what otherwise he had plenary ability for doing. Chronologically, this contention seems to have preceded the assertion which must logically lie at its base of the freedom of man from any taint, corruption, or weakness due to sin. It was in order that they might deny that man needed help, that they denied Adam's sin had any further effect on his posterity than might arise from his bad example. Before the action of his own proper will, says Pelagius plainly, that only is in man which God made. As we are procreated without virtue, he said, so also without vice. In a word, Nothing that is good and evil on account of which we are either praiseworthy or blameworthy is born with us. It is rather done by us, for we are born with capacity for either, but provided with neither. So his later follower, Julian, plainly asserts his faith that God creates men obnoxious to no sin but full of natural innocence and with capacity for voluntary virtues. So entrenched is free will in nature that, according to Julian, it is just as complete after sins as it was before sins. And what this means may be gathered from Pelagius's definition on the confession of faith that he sent to innocent. We say that man is always able both to sin and not to sin, so as that we may confess that we have free will. That sin in such circumstances was so common as to be well nigh universal, was accounted for by the bad example of Adam and the power of habit, and latter being simply the result of imitation of the former. Nothing makes well-doing so hard, writes Pelagius to Demetrius, as the long custom of sins which begins from childhood and gradually brings us more and more under its power until it seems to have in some degree the force of nature, vim naturae. He is even ready to allow for the force of habit in a broad way on the world at large and so divides all history into progressive periods marked by God's external grace. At first, the light of nature was so strong that men, by it alone, could live in holiness. And it was only when men's manners became corrupt and tarnished, nature began to be insufficient for holy living, that by God's grace, the law was given as an addition to mere nature. And by it, the original luster was restored to nature after its blush had been impaired. 
And so again, after the habit of sinning once more prevailed among men, and the law become unequal to the task of curing it, Christ was given, furnishing men with forgiveness of sins, exhortations to imitation of the example and the holy example itself. But though thus a progressive deterioration was confessed, and such a deterioration as rendered desirable at least two supernatural interpositions in the giving of the law and the coming of Christ, yet no corruption of nature, even by growing habit, is really allowed. It was only an ever-increasing facility in imitating vice which arose from so long a schooling in evil. And all that was needed to rescue men from it was a new explanation of what was right in the law or, at the most, the encouragement of forgiveness for what was already done and a holy example in Christ for imitation. Pelagius still asserted our continuous possession of a free will which is unimpaired for sinning and for not sinning. And Julian, that... Our free will is just as full after sins as it was before sins. Although Augustine does not fail to twit him with a charge of inconsistency. The peculiar individualism of the Pelagian view of the world comes out strongly in their failure to perceive the effect of habit on nature itself. Just as they conceived of virtue as a complex of virtuous acts, so they conceived of sin exclusively as an act or series of disconnected acts. They appear not to have risen above the essentially heathen view which had no notion of holiness apart from a series of acts of holiness or of sin apart from a like series of sinful acts. Thus the will was isolated from its acts, and the acts from each other, and all organic connection or continuity of life was not only overlooked, but denied. After each act of the will, man stood exactly where he did before. Indeed, this conception scarcely allows for the existence of a man, only a willing machine is left. At each click of the action of which the spring regains its original position and is equally ready as before to re-perform its function. In such a conception, there was no place for character. Freedom of will was all. Thus, it was not an unnatural mistake which they made when they forgot the man altogether and attributed to the faculty of free will under the name of possibilitas or passe the ability that belonged rather to the man whose faculty it is, and who is properly responsible for the use he makes of it. Here lies the essential error of their doctrine of free will. They looked upon freedom in its form only and not in its matter, and keeping man in perpetual and hopeless equilibrium between good and evil, they permitted no growth of character and no advantage to himself to be gained by man in his successive choices of good. It need not surprise us that the type of thought which thus dissolved the organism of the man into a conjuries of disconnected voluntary acts failed to comprehend the solidarity of the race. To the Pelagian, Adam was a man, nothing more, and it was simply unthinkable that any act of his that left his own subsequent acts uncommitted could entail sin and guilt upon other men. 
The same alembic that dissolved the individual into a succession of voluntary acts could not fail to separate the race into a heap of unconnected units. If sin, as Julian declared, is nothing but will, and the will itself remained intact after each act, how could the individual act of an individual will condition the acts of men as yet unborn? By imitation of his act alone could, under such a conception, other men be affected. And this carried with it the corresponding view of man's relation to Christ. He could forgive us the sins we had committed. He could teach us the true way. He could set us a holy example, and he could exhort us to his imitation. But he could not touch us to enable us to will the good without destroying the absolute equilibrium of the will between good and evil. And to destroy this was to destroy its freedom, which was the crowning good of our divinely created nature. Surely the Pelagians forgot that man was not made for will, but will for man. In defending their theory, as we are told by Augustine, there were five claims that they essentially made for it. It allowed them to praise, as was their due, the creature that God had made, the marriage that he had instituted, the law that he had given, the free will which was his greatest endowment to man, and the saints who had followed his counsels. By this, they meant that they proclaimed the sinless perfection of human nature in every man as he was brought into the world, and opposed this to the doctrine of original sin, the purity and holiness of marriage and the sexual appetites, and opposed this to the doctrine of the transmission of sin, the ability of the law as well as and apart from the gospel to bring men into eternal life, and opposed this the necessity of inner grace, the integrity of free will to choose the good and oppose this to the necessity of divine aid, and the perfection of the lives of the saints and oppose this to the doctrine of universal sinfulness. Other questions concerning the origin of souls, the necessity of baptism for infants, the original immortality of Adam, lay more on the skirts of the controversy and were rather consequences of their teaching than parts of it. As it was an obvious fact that all men died, they could not admit that Adam's death was a consequence of sin, lest they should be forced to confess that his sin had injured all men. They therefore asserted that physical death belonged to the very nature of man and that Adam would have died even had he not sinned. So, as it was impossible to deny that the church everywhere baptized infants, they could not refuse them baptism without confessing themselves innovators in doctrine. And therefore, they contended that infants were not baptized for forgiveness of sins, but in order to attain a higher state of salvation. Finally, they conceived that if it was admitted that souls were directly created by God for each birth, it could not be asserted that they came into the world soiled by sin and under condemnation, and therefore they loudly championed this theory of the origin of souls. The teachings of Pelagians, it will be readily seen, easily welded themselves into a system 
the essential and formative elements of which were entirely new in the Christian church. And this startlingly new reading of man's condition, powers, and dependence for salvation, it was that broke like a thunderbolt upon the Western church at the opening of the 5th century and forced her to reconsider from the foundations her whole teaching as to man and his salvation. 